Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of folk horror that has gone from a cabin in the Yukon to a church on the Louisiana Bayou. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, A Dark Rue. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Blaine Daigle. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this second day of December 2023. After reading your amazing work of folk horror, The Broken Places, I couldn't wait to read A Dark Rue. What I found was an even more complex story. It involves familial trauma caused by the sins of ancestors, a dark supernatural world painted with tones of voodoo, and a cast of very unique characters. Some are flawed to the point of being irredeemable, while others are resilient and resigned to their fate, but they all complement the story perfectly. So I'm happy to have you on the show today to dive into this amazing dark story. Awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Absolutely. Well, so the book is about a young woman named Rhiannon LeBeau, who, as far as I can tell, is a social worker working with abused children. She felt drawn to this particular field due to the abuse she suffered at the hands of her father, Patrick LeBeau. The minute I heard the name Rhiannon, I immediately thought of a friend from my childhood who had a sister named Rhiannon, who was named after the song by Stevie Nicks of the same name which, as it turns out, is also the inspiration for Rhiannon's name in the story. And in the story, Rhiannon's mother, Miranda, is accused of being a witch, much like Stevie Nicks was due to her habit of wearing black on stage. So did Stevie Nicks' life and aesthetic have any influence on the story? And if so, in what way? I don't know how much influence Stevie Nicks herself had. I know that I adore that song. I always have. And I think with Rhiannon sort of being, as a character, someone so uniquely entrenched in the world that she is in, while also feeling completely separate, I felt like that song was a really good kind of encapsulation of that dichotomy because, you know, it's a song about an old Welsh witch, as Stevie Nicks liked to say, and that's, you know, the United Kingdom which could not be more diametrically different than 
what we have down here. And yet at the same time, so much of the imagery and so much of the tone is very similar. So I always thought that that song really kind of encapsulated her character as opposed to, you know, me basing her off of Stevie Nicks or anything of that sort. But the song, I love that song. I love Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. So it obviously had a good bit. Just for me, it was a little bit more of, you know, the concept of what the song represented for me than so much someone being based off somebody else. Mm. And is Rhiannon, was that a common name before that song? Or was that like a unique name that she came up with? Because I had never heard Rhiannon. And I remember specifically asking my friend, like, where did that name come from? Because I don't think I'd ever heard it before. They said, oh, they named her after a song by Stevie Nicks. I have no idea. I've had one student named Rhiannon. And I was talking to her one day and I was talking about her name. And she was like, yeah, my mom named me after this weird song from the 70s. I don't know. Yeah. It's always my mom, dad, whatever, named me after the song. I've never right, met. Exactly. I've never met a Rhiannon that was just like, no, it's just a name. You know, they like the sound of it. Right. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, Rhiannon and her brother, Rhett, endure a lot of harassment and abuse because their mother, Miranda, is associated with a man's disappearance and the suicide of her husband. And I must say, as you progress through the book, Miranda emerges as a very emotionally complex character. You can't help but empathize with her, regardless of the good and bad things she does. And in my opinion, she probably is the most compelling character for this reason. So how did you envision and develop Miranda's character flaws and all? Well, originally in the early planning of the story in the first real draft that I started writing, Miranda was actually a living character throughout the entire book. Rhett was not in the story at all. And the story was going to deal with Rhiannon coming home to help her mother. And I was going to try to play along with the mother-daughter dynamic and try to you know, talk about the stresses and things like that there. And somewhere around like midway through first draft, it just wasn't really working. I wasn't drawn to it. I felt like it just, it didn't really have too much heart for me at least. And I started brainstorming and I was like, well, what if, Miranda is dead and her death is what is the catalyst for the daughter to come back as opposed to the original way, which is a hurricane. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of funny. Like when someone dies, their entire life, he kind of comes into focus and people typically tend to forget about a lot of the sort of negative parts of someone's personality because you obviously you don't want to be bone the dead mm. and they're not there to defend themselves. So it's kind of like, you know, don't cheap shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you also know that when someone does die and everybody starts talking about the good things, there's always that little, you know, collective of people that are like, whoa, 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 no, wait, 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 who want to remind you of everything about them. And in a way, I think that people sort of become their own legends upon their death because the stories about them are stories told from other people. Mm. And with Miranda, I thought Miranda would be perfect for that kind of thing because, you know, she's accused of being a witch when she's not, but she is interested in the stuff. And there's so much complexity with her that it almost only seemed fair for most of her story to be like rumors. Hmm. More Fleetwood Mac, right? With rumors. <laughs> <laughs> and with her, 
I felt that, especially with that mother-daughter dynamic that I was trying to encapsulate, I'm not a daughter. So it's hard for me to really speak to a mother-daughter relationship. But at the same time, I've been around people that have talked about their parents and have those strained relationships. And I thought it might work better if Rhiannon was telling these memories and these stories in memoriam of someone who's passed as opposed to having the direct confrontations like on the page. Mm. So that was really how Miranda's entire character kind of came into play. And I think the more that I wrote her, I got more sympathetic towards her the further the story got in. Mm. But basically she becomes more sympathetic the more you learn about her situation. And that grew organically as I was writing. That wasn't in, you know, the pre-writing that wasn't in the outline. It just felt right to have her and Rhiannon essentially grow closer in her death. Mm. Yeah. Well, so the story is set in Terrebonne Parish in Louisiana, which is an actual place. And I was curious to know, what about this area made it an ideal setting for the different elements of your story? Well, one, I grew up in St. James Parish, which is actually one parish above Terrebonne. Mm -hmm. So we would go down to Terrebonne quite a bit. But the main reason I chose it was because, you know, when you hear about all these stories that are set in Louisiana, New Orleans is oftentimes the place. Mm. But I think you and I talked about it last time. Like there's a very real difference in how New Orleans is viewed versus what it actually is. Mm. And a lot of the traits that are usually assigned to New Orleans are truly traits that are found in Terrebonne and Lafouche Parish, which is a little bit southwest. So to me, it was a way to get all those cool little things that people like about those Bayou New Orleans kind of stories, but put them in the actual setting in which they take place. And just, you know, for the atmospheric part of it, the Bayou, the further south you get, gets so much thicker, so much more dense. So it just worked out perfectly. It's everything you want in the actual setting in which it's found. Mm. And... Parish is analogous to county, right? Correct. Okay. So Terrebonne, and what was the other one? Lafouche. Lafouche. You get in there, that's where the bayou and I guess the surrounding foliage just gets really thick. Yeah. What was it that people would say about New Orleans? Wetlands or something that they would always associate? Yeah, like the swamps in New Orleans. Swamps, swamps. Yeah, and you're like, it's a metropolitan city. There's no, where are these swamps? Yeah. Yeah. They think we just go visit the French Quarter in our fan boats. Yeah. <laughs> Get the Cajun Navy to drop you off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the story begins in the present day with Rhett contacting Rhiannon to inform her of her mother's or their mother's death. They need to meet back at the house to settle their mother's affairs and decide what to do with the house and the surrounding sugarcane fields. And Rhett mentions that he has a buyer for the land, but nobody really wants to touch the house with a 10-foot pole due to its reputation as a, quote, witch house. So there are many scary scenes that take place within those cane fields. It's obviously an effective device for horror because it provides a hiding place for evil entities to come in and out. But why choose cane fields as opposed to thick woods or a cornfield. And I guess maybe the answer to that is people don't grow corn in that particular area. I don't know. <laughs> no, you can. 
But uh, the reason why I chose the cane field was for a couple of reasons. Number one is I grew up in St. James Parish and we and the sugarcane industry from down in Terrebonne bleeds into St. James. I grew up surrounded by cane fields my entire life. And like you said, it's that hidden element. You know, oftentimes we hear about, hey, don't let your pets go into the cane fields because they got coyotes out there. Mm. And just like that idea of you don't know what's out there. Something could be hiding in there. And I think when you're a kid, especially growing up around that kind of stuff, you sort of assign it some level of malevolence, even if it's not necessarily supposed to have any. Mm. And similar to how I think, you know, someone who lives like in a mountainous forest region might view a thick forest. It's kind of how we view the sugarcane fields. It's just like, okay, well, there could be something creepy in there. Mm-hmm. But also, it really was able to be a perfect metaphor for the differences between, you know, the south of the past and the south of the present. Because it was something that, you know, as time has gone on, you're starting to see these bigger corporations kind of take over farms as opposed to people owning their own individual farms. Mm -hmm. That was just a really good way because the LeBeaux are kind of like the last holdout. There was this new company that had brought in as the buyer who wants to, you know, take the fields and Miranda won't sell. And that was a really good bridge for me to be able to connect the past events all the way back from the early 1900s into the current events, because that sugarcane is still there. Mm. Well, another very effective plot device you use, as you alluded to earlier, being part of Terrebonne Parish, is the Louisiana Bayou, a long stretch of water too dark to see into, teeming with alligators and water moccasins. And... I thought it was from a reliable source, but apparently not. And I can't remember who it was, but somebody told me that unlike most snakes, which only strike when they feel threatened, water moccasins will aggressively pursue you upon sight. Like if you come into their general area, they're like aggressive. They'll come after you, you know, even if you're not in a position that would make them feel threatened. But then I read that that's not true. So I was curious to know what your experience is and if it's untrue where the story originated. I think that it probably originates from the fact that a water moccasin is more likely to strike quickly Mm -hmm. as opposed to most snakes that will probably hold a defensive position for longer. Mm. I mean, I've had plenty of experience with them. They typically behave like most any other snake. Mm. They'll typically coil up and they'll hold their ground and, Maybe some of you listeners have not heard the word water moccasin. They probably know it as a cotton mouth. Cotton mouth, yeah. So like they'll open their mouth. They have like a really, really white interior of their mouth. Mm. And that's used as like a show of aggression, basically. Mm. So they'll curl up into a ball and they'll do that. The water moccasin, A, it's without question the most commonly seen snake you're going to see down here. Oh, lovely. And then also <laughs> it's kind of got this weird symbolic connection with the area. Mm. Very similar to how you'll see like rattlesnakes will have that symbolic connection to like the desert, mm. but they behave just like any other snake. At least from my experience, I've never been attacked by one. I've stumbled across them plenty of times. Mm. Typically, they either try to get away or they'll just get into a ball. I have heard that when they get into that ball, they're more likely to strike quickly. Mm. They're not just going to sit there and wait for you to get away. Okay. But I've also heard that they're known for delivering a lot of dry bites. Oh, so they don't inject venom? 
Right. They'll strike at you and you'll get the fangs, but they're not going to waste the venom. Hmm. So that's only what I've been told. I've never been bitten by a cottonmouth or a water moccasin, so I couldn't really tell you. But yeah, they're just snakes. Well, that's good to know. I'm still going to run like hell if I ever see one. <laughs> it's a good strategy. I don't care who's around and what kind of a wimp I look like. I'm taking off. I feel like a drive by would still hurt really bad. I'm going to leave women and children. By- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll protect the women and children, but then I'm running like hell. Well, so there are scenes in which Rhiannon recalls visiting an old church along the bayou. And the description in the book made me think of kind of an old Southern Baptist church. But instead of Christianity, voodoo was practiced there. And this reminded me of how some Catholics also practice Santeria. So I was wondering, why do you think that so many people blend more arcane practices with Christianity, especially when fundamentalist versions of Christianity often denounce it as blasphemy? And what is your experience with this in Louisiana? I can tell you exactly why it's very common down here. Okay. So the part of Louisiana that I live in, well, not now, I live a little bit closer to the Mississippi line now, but that I grew up in and that, you know, the story takes place in is Catholic country, mm-hmm. heavily, heavily Catholic. And there's a lot of correlation between Catholicism and voodoo. And a lot of it stems from, for those that don't know what voodoo actually is, voodoo is a religion. It's not magic. When you think of it as magic, you're thinking of hoodoo. Voodoo is actually a religion, and not only is it a religion, it's a monotheistic religion. So it's got one God and many spirits. And when you had a lot of Haitians that were brought to Louisiana during the 1800s and earlier, there was this blend of Haitian voodoo and the French Catholic ancestry of the area. And there's quite a bit of overlap between the two of them. For instance, Catholics obviously believe in, you know, the Christian God, but they also believe in saints. And that would be the correlation between the one God and the many spirits. Correct. Because voodoo believes in the one God and it's not the Christian God, but it's God. Yeah. And they believe in the spirits called Lewa. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. I've heard it said a couple different ways. Lewa is the most commonly used. And so what would happen was you had all of these people in Louisiana who wanted to practice voodoo. Obviously, the 1800s was not exactly the best time for a lot of people to exist. And what they noticed was is that there was a lot of correlation between the specific saints and what they were meant to represent to the Lewas. So there's a lot of crossover where like St. Peter in Catholic mythology might be a specific Lewa in another mythology, in the voodoo mythology. So you had lots of people who practiced voodoo that would actually go to Catholic masses. And then, you know, growing up, I am Catholic, growing up Catholic, that was a very common understanding. It's kind of like this idea that like Christianity looks down on voodoo and you do get that in like the evangelical Mm. and the Protestant. That's not really the case in the Catholics. Maybe in other parts of the country, but I know down here, voodoo is just very much an accepted part of the land. It's not looked down upon. It's understood. It's accepted. I'm sure there are a few bigots out there that make it really, really hard. But that was my experience growing up with it. You know, there were a few people that I grew up with that I didn't really kind of know at the time. 
But, you know, as time went on, I learned that, yeah, they're voodoo practitioners. And a lot of them, I would see them around church. Hmm. So that's the connection. And I think that it's very interesting connection to make, especially when you talk about, you know, the historical aspects of the area, especially in an area like the South where you had the old South and new South. And I think that as far as I know as well, I don't want to speak for everyone. I think the Catholic church, like the actual church is quite lenient in its stance toward voodoo. I think it's very much accepted. Like it's just as a whole. It's what I've heard. I know for a fact that there's a lot of Haitian masses Mm -hmm. that are completely allowed to incorporate elements of voodoo in the actual mass. Oh, wow. Yeah, it also makes me think about, you know, I mentioned Christianity and Santeria, but it also makes me think about just mainstream Christianity and the pagan elements, you know, when, when they were telling the pagans, all right, you guys have to convert to Christianity, but we'll make you a deal. You can keep the tree, you know, the evergreen tree at Christmas. Mm -hmm. You can keep the aphrodisiac of the mistletoe. What's one of the other things? And like even Easter, you know, it's a celebration of the spring equinox. It's basically a celebration of fertility, which is why the Easter bunny, you know, how rabbits reproduce, you know. So, yeah, that's interesting. And I don't know with Judaism, if Kabbalah is kind of analogous to that. I don't know if Kabbalah is considered like a fringe thing or if it's kind of like the way voodoo is incorporated into Christianity. I'm not sure. Would it be interesting to look at? Yeah, because I've heard it described as Jewish mysticism. Yeah. Which I guess maybe would be more akin to Christianity and Gnostic Christianity, maybe. Yeah, that is something that actually does sound like quite the interesting rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners at home will refrain, but uh, it will <laughs> yeah, happen at some the, point. Sorry for the history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in the story, a key portal into Rhiannon's coming-of-age journey is the book The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. And the protagonist of this novel, Esther, shares many parallels with Rhiannon in her struggle with mental illness, identity, and selfhood, as well as the themes of transformation and renewal. Was there a particular book that you read growing up which held similar significance in the evolution of your adolescent life? And if so, could you tell us about it? Or would it, in fact, be The Bell Jar? (laughs) It was not The Bell Jar. I did read The Bell Jar, but... The book for me was, and it was around the same time that Rhiannon started reading The Bell Jar, the book for me was Alex Garland's The Beach. The Beach, okay. If you don't know who Alex Garland is, he's kind of moved away from novels. He wrote the movie 28 Days Later, Sunshine. He's the director of Annihilation and Ex Machina. Mm. I love Ex Machina. He got his start writing novels, and his debut novel was called The Beach. It was made into a terrible movie in 1999 with Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) But that book, I remember seeing the trailer for the movie, which was significantly better than the movie itself. But before I saw the movie, I wanted to read the book. It said, you know, it had like based on the best-selling novel. And what it is, is a story of backpackers discovering this hidden paradise beach in Thailand. And coming to realize that paradise very much has a price. And I remember 
being just enthralled at it. And at that point in my life, you know, I'd read some Stephen King. I read Michael Crichton, but this was a little bit different. And there was this feeling of crossing over from being a kid to being a young adult. Whereas like, I felt like I was reading something transformative for me, it tied into a lot of identity issues, a lot of like trying to figure out, you know, how to exist in a world in which the thing that you search for is not there or coming to grips with the fact that, you know, sometimes what you want the most is not what you need as well as things like grief and friendship. And that book just, I read it usually once a year. I love it. And I wanted to find a book that would do the same thing for Rhiannon and who she was as a character. And the more I thought about it, I looked at a lot of options. The bell jar just perfectly encapsulated who she was, what she was going through. And especially that idea, which, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but comes back to play later in the book of not feeling whole. Mm. So I thought that was just perfect. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And I have to admit, I've never, well, you know what? I think I have read The Bell Jar, but it was when I was probably Rhiannon's age and I did a lot of partying in between (laughs) then and now. Memory's a little foggy, but I know it kind of has this reputation as being like just dark and nihilistic and stuff like that, which I mean, quite funny. Yeah. And there are some parts that are kind of dark and nihilistic, but and I guess in kind of like a Kamu absurdist way, sort of. Yes. But it yeah. also has the themes of possible redemption and mm-hmm. transformation. Yes. So, yeah, very interesting, very uh, effective literary device, I guess you would call it. But uh, in present day, as Rhiannon and Rhett spend the night in the house, Rhiannon is terrorized by poltergeist activity that Rhett never hears. As you make your way through the book, these strange manifestations all make sense within an elaborate backstory. And in the back of the book, you refer to this book as your, quote, little problem child because of the multiple rewrites and revisions it underwent before the first draft was even complete. So was the relationship between the poltergeist activity and the elaborate backstory involving the LeBeau family legacy One of the reasons for the rewrites? And if so, what were some of the other reasons for the many rewrites? So actually, the haunting aspect of it was one of the few things that really lasted from the first draft into the other ones. Mm. I was always very clear on what I wanted to do there. The reason for most of the rewrites was because when I wrote The Broken Places, I'm obviously not from the Yukon. Mm. So all of what I gathered from the Yukon came from research to try to create as authentic of a picture as I possibly could. So then when I went into a dark room, a lot of what I originally tried to do was things that I knew if one would research Louisiana would come up. So like in the original draft, like the reason Rhiannon is going to come back is that her mother is still in the house and there's a hurricane looming down and she won't leave. So it's Rhiannon's job to go over there and get her out of there before the hurricane hits and literally destroys the house. And the more I got into that, I kind of hit this point where I'm just thinking to myself and I kept rewriting and rewriting certain spots. I'm like, I don't feel as though the heart is there. 
I don't feel as though the soul is there. I'm trying to find that one thing to latch onto that's going to emotionally invest my readers. And right now, all I've got is Rhiannon's strained relationship with her mother. And I thought about it a lot. I tried different things. And one of the things that I kind of settled on that was like the snap was Rhett, the inclusion of Rhett, as well as his relationship with Kendra and her family. And Kendra and her family were not in the original draft either. They were added later to try to create something that would be an emotional pull for the reader. And it was like magic. Like the moment I did that, all of a sudden the words started flowing. It all made sense. But just searching for that heart was the reason. The more I thought about it, it was like, you know, in the early drafts, I tried so hard to make it clear that this was Louisiana as opposed to just letting it be Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up doing was I added red, I added the Beauchamp family, and I just let the setting be the setting. I didn't try to push it. I didn't try to hit a checklist about what needs to be in this kind of story. I just let the story tell itself at that point. And I found that what I gained from that was a ton of heart. And really one of the biggest things, and I guess it's not a spoiler because it's in the prologue, was the fact that on the night that Rhiannon and Rhett's father kills himself, Rhiannon specifically asks her brother to stay up late and wait for her to get back. So because of that action, Rhett sees his father kill himself. Mm. And that recontextualized the entire story. And from that point on, I was like, this is a story about atonement. And the moment that that happened, it was just like floodgates were open. Everything started going. And that's when I really fell in love with this story. It was like, okay, this heart and this soul that I've tried so hard to create, I didn't have to create it. Now it's there. Mm. And to be honest, that was a big thing that helped with Miranda's character as well. Because once that is set, now Miranda gets to operate as that ever-looming presence as opposed to, here's this character. And I think her is that ever-looming presence really helps her characterization as well as the story's progression. What kind of a feeling is that when you've been trying to write something and you've been struggling with details and arcs and it's like a computer that's running really clunky and then all of a sudden like you said it starts falling into place and the creative rush just starts coming i mean (laughs) what does that feel like it's euphoric yeah it really is it's like getting high Mm -hmm. it's like runner's high where it's like you're tired you're worn down and then something happens and your blood starts flowing like battery acid. And it's just mm. like, okay, all of a sudden, second I've wind. got the second wind. Yeah. And everything that didn't make sense before makes sense now. Euphoric is the best way I can describe it. Yeah. Just breaking through the plateau. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, in the book, there were multiple flashbacks and in particular, a particular time period to the summer of 99, which was the time period of Rhiannon's adolescence. But what age was she in the summer of 99? She was 12, I believe. 12. Okay. Yeah. Right there in the throes of puberty. So does this year hold a particular significance for you? And if so, what is it? 
It does, but I didn't think about it when I was writing. It was only after that I realized it. 99 for me, I was born in 92. Okay. So I was seven in 1999. And I can very, very vividly remember that year. Before that, it's just kind of like a little bit of a, you know, fragmented memories of specific bits and pieces. But 99 just sticks out in my head. And, you know, that was the year that I discovered the Animorph books, which really got me into reading. Mm-hmm. I remember we had moved into a new house and I was starting to understand things that I didn't understand before. And it was a huge year for me. It really was. And I didn't think about that until after I had written the book and someone pointed out the fact that in both the Broken Places and A Dark Rue, the year 1999 is present. Mm-hmm. In The Broken Places, the prologue takes place in December of 1999. And I was like, snap. And that the more I thought about it, it was like, oh, it makes a lot of sense. That was kind of like a bridge year for me from childhood to what would essentially become pre-adolescence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's three years before you really get into the puberty element. And Rhiannon's obviously a little bit older than I was, but Rhett's a little bit closer. And I think in a lot of ways, also 1999, I was starting a new school. I'd moved and there was kind of like that weird feeling of being the outcast. I vividly remember it, like even now. So in a lot of ways, I think that helped me write Rhett's character because I understood what a kid like that might go through. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I'm right on the border, so I'm about as young a Gen Xer as you can be. So at the age of 12 was 92. And it's funny that you say that because 12, I would say, is when, I don't know if it's the same experience for other people with that age, but up until that point, I had never been into music. And the whole grunge thing was going on. And I discovered Smells Like Teen Spirit, the song. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to the entire Nevermind album. And then the next thing you know, I was all about music and I kind of like turned into a teenager, so to speak, you know, started being interested in adolescent things as opposed to, you know, I don't know, what do you call before that tween or something? Yeah, pre-adolescent. Yeah. And that's when I started reading. I wasn't really reading fiction. I was reading you know, Jim Morrison's poetry and Nietzsche, anything I could use to romanticize self-destruction. Absolutely. That <laughs> so, was a lot of emotional angst back then. So, uh, yeah. Well, it was grunge. Yeah, yeah. The uh, flannel shirts. Absolutely. I had a couple of flannel shirts. Which, no, it's funny, too, as you think about it. Like, obviously, as you grow up, your taste and stuff change. Mm-hmm. But that music you like from that age, from about 10 to 13, when you really discovered it, it never goes away. Mm-hmm. Like I can openly say that, you know, it was 2004 ish where I was going through like my early teens mm-hmm. and emo was popular. I don't listen to emo anymore, but if you put on some Taken Back Sunday song from 2004, I will sing along. Mm-hmm. I cannot actively hate it because I know it was like, I used to like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 It's funny. Yeah. What really sucks is I don't really listen to music now. But my wife was asking me what I listened to when I was a kid. And I said, Nirvana. She's like, oh, yeah, I like them. They play them on the classic rock station all the time. I like, kill, fuck. Kills my God kills damn it. My I'm dad. officially old. <laughs> kills my dad. <laughs> 
Well, let's get off that subject. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there is a character in your book referred to as the Ferryman. While the Ferryman appears in many mythologies, given that your setting is in Louisiana, is there a specific context in which the Ferryman exists within Voodoo? Sort of. So there's a character in Voodoo known as Papa Legba kind of fulfills that same role. I don't want to say he does for certain because obviously while I know a lot about it, I'm not entrenched in the world, but it is a very similar concept. And another big connection between voodoo and Catholicism is the journey to the other side. Catholics believe in purgatory and voodoo has that same kind of idea and the ferryman is across many mythologies kind of just that central figure that ushers people to the other side. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I don't know how exactly correlative Papalegba is to the ferryman, but I did know that it kind of was a cool image and a cool idea to have a ferryman be the transporter of souls to the other side where the other side is at the end of this long murky bayou. Mm. that exists on like a parallel plane. So in that regard, that was the idea for his inclusion. And not to mention, this is like an immortal being. So he is the one that gives us the connective tissue between what happened in 99 and what is currently happening today. He's the one who kind of, because he was there in 99, he's there today. He's the one that kind of acts as that informant where he's like, oh yeah, well, you have all these puzzle pieces. Allow me to connect them for you. Mm. Yeah. As far as any other mythological thing I've heard of, like um, Set, the Egyptian netter. Mm. Um, yep. Yeah. I forget what he did. He had something to do with the sun rising and setting. He would fare. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, I can't because uh, I really don't know. <laughs> isn't the Egyptian one, is it Anubis? That does what? That, like, transports the souls. Maybe. Yeah, I'd have to look it up. But what I was going to say was, you know, they're always on, like, some body of water that isn't in itself particularly sinister. But the vision of the ferryman, you know, some mysterious individual bringing spirits back and forth on a bayou in the dark like it made me think of, have you ever seen True Detective, the HBO series, the first one? Yes. Yeah. When Matthew McConaughey goes undercover to the bikers and yeah. he's like, we're going to meet up, you know, wherever. And he's like, where's that? And he just points down the bayou. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that whole aesthetic is so dark and only obtainable in the dirty South. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, so... In the story, ground-up brick is used in rituals, similar to how salt is often employed for its aspects of purity and preservation. So is ground-up brick actually used in real rituals? And if so, for what purpose? It's not unique to voodoo. It's used in quite a few mm. across the world. But the use of it is, like you said, of salt. It's very, very similar. It's, you know a natural compound. It's not synthetically created. Brick is clay mm. and it's used as protection. It's used to close off barriers, to close off doorways, things like that to essentially protect the caster or the practitioner. 
you know, I think that one of the big issues that I have with how voodoo is oftentimes represented in media is the idea of harm. Like you have like voodoo dolls and stuff, which mm-hmm. is not actually a part of voodoo at all. It's um, not part of hoodoo? It's not part of voodoo. It's, it's no, not. No, 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 hoodoo with an H. As far as I know, it's not. It's Spanish. Oh, okay. The voodoo doll is a Spanish thing that when the Spanish landed in New Orleans, they brought that with them and it's got taken into the lexicon of it all. Oh, okay. But most of voodoo and hoodoo for that matter is about protection and healing. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I really wanted to express that. And the ground brick is a perfect example. It's literally a protection. Like one of the biggest things is Grigri, a Grigri bag. Okay. I wondered how that was pronounced. <laughs> Grigri. And, yeah. Grigri. Okay. And you know, it's oftentimes referred to as like a curse. It's not a curse. It's literally a protection spell. So that was, you know, and crush brick kind of falls in that category and it's used in many different beliefs across the world. It's just one of those things where it's just, it's natural. It's from the earth. So yeah, that's the connection with it. Yeah. And it seems like symbolically, it's like you're protected by a brick wall. If you're in a circle, of, yeah. you know, like the only one of the three little pigs that didn't get his defenses breached by the big bad wolf was the one that built his house of brick. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of the big bad wolf, or was that the three little pigs? Yeah, it was. Okay. Wasn't just Little Red Riding Hood. Man, wolves are really villainized. Those poor wolves. Yeah, they are. Poor wolves, I should say. <laughs> Dude, I kind of did it too in my first book, so I can't say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the villain of the book is a woman named, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Antoinette Louvier. Is that correct? Yep. All right, got it. She is depicted as terrifying and ruthless, but it seems possible that she wasn't inherently evil. Rather, she was made that way by suffering a severe atrocity at the hands of some very evil men. So what is the truth about Louvier? Was she born evil or made evil? And can you expand on that without, you know, getting into spoiler territory? Uh, Sure. Louvier, in my mind, Obviously, a reader might come to a different interpretation, but this is just me. I'm of the firm belief that there's nobody on this planet that's 100% inherently good or inherently bad. And I think that she encapsulates that because she is very much a victim of circumstance in terms of what happens to her. However, the darkness in her heart that is present, essentially the atrocity that occurs to her is what allows that darkness to spread past her constraints. So, whereas I think everybody's got a little bit of darkness inside of them in some way, shape, or form. The shadow self. Yeah, we're able to kind of, you know, control that. And I think that the atrocity that she suffered basically took down the defenses and allowed what darkness was there to completely consume. Mm. Yeah, because... Whatever her state of mind was before the atrocity happened at the end of the book, she is just, (laughs) she talk about adding insult to injury. Good God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Rhiannon, and you've alluded to this uh, character earlier, Rhiannon and Rhett's refuge from the storm was the friendship that they had with the housekeeper named Kendra and her son, Albert. And I believe the daughter's name was Clea. Clea. Okay. How did the big sister-like relationship between Kendra and Rhiannon shape Rhiannon's character when it came to life and death struggles? 
Well, as I said before, the story is about atonement. And in a lot of ways, Kendra's story, again, trying to avoid spoilers as best I can. Kendra's story is rooted in her failure. And it's one of the darker scenes in the book so much that I didn't even really write it. I just kind of like let it be told because it's heavy. Mm. And I think that in a lot of ways, Kendra is very similar to Rhiannon on this constant search for atonement. I don't even want to say justice because I feel like justice kind of falls below it. I think atonement is where the soul gets redemption. Mm. And so in a way they are so uniquely connected in their care for the people that they care for, you know, what Kendra will do for her children, what Rhiannon will do for her brother and the guilt they feel in being unable to do what they feel is their duty. So I think that because Miranda was in an absolute constant state of turmoil in the summer of 99, Kendra almost becomes a surrogate mother figure for Rhiannon and sort of becomes that North star. And then, you know, the more Rhiannon learns about Kendra, then you get a little bit of doubt thrown in there for some other things that it forces Rhiannon to think about things on a much wider scale than she had previously done. Mm. And Kendra is very much the catalyst for that. Mm. Well, great book. I mean, the broken places. And then this, the next one you come out with, I, (laughs) I, I can only imagine. So I was curious to know, I looked into it a little bit. The book was released on November 8th and I've noticed it has I guess a cumulative rating of four and a half stars from 43 ratings on Amazon, which to me suggests it's doing pretty well. And I believe the five stars was 71%. So would you say that's an accurate assessment? I hope so. Obviously I don't want to, you know, speak for a reader. Readers are going to have their own interpretations and their own opinions about how good the book actually is. Mm -hmm. I will say that I've been extremely happy with the reception so far. It seems as though people are finding something in it, mm-hmm. which with a book is niche of a genre, Southern Gothic. I think that you have to kind of temper your expectations a little bit because certain things are going to definitely resonate more for some people mm-hmm. than others. But I have been very happy. I've heard people say that have read both books and with a few exceptions, the unanimous decision so far has been, this is a better book. And I think it's because, you know, in a lot of ways, I wrote this book with a lot of the lessons that I learned from writing The Broken Places. So it's a little bit of an evolution in terms of, you know, what I do whenever I write. And I've also had people, you know, from Louisiana who have messaged me and said, thank you for portraying the state, honestly. Mm. And that means so much to me because that's what I wanted to do. I've had some people be like, you know, I've never been to the state before. Now I really want to go and see the bayous for myself. And that means it's having some kind of impact with people, which makes me exceptionally happy. I've had people who have really, really attached to the characters of Rhiannon and Rhett. And I've had a lot of mothers who have said like how much they understood Miranda, which I'm very happy about that. I hope the book continues to get the same reception that it's currently getting. And I hope that readers can find something in it. Like he said before, it's very elaborate in a lot of ways. There's a lot of moving parts Mm -hmm. and I hope that 
for readers that at least one of those moving pieces is something they can latch onto and, you know, get something out of it. Well, what is the strangest review or input that you've gotten about the book? Strange in the sense of either unexpected or just downright quirky. Like what? <laughs> Let's see. I had two. I had one where I had someone whose bio said they were from uh, New York. Tell me that I obviously didn't understand too much about Southern folklore. That was interesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh. Then, uh, and then I had one who uh, bemoans the, and again, like I said, like a negative review is a negative review. Like I said, people are going to have different opinions about the story, but this was talking about the gratuitous violence in the book. And I was like, did you read the same book that I wrote? Like, have you ever read Splatterpunk? <laughs> yeah, like I actually took a picture of it and I sent it to Andrew Nyberg in a message because he had read the book already. Mm -hmm. And I said, was I missing something here <laughs> or like you sick bastard? <laughs> he said, dude, this could almost be called quiet horror. I don't know where they're getting gratuitous violence from. I was like, I don't know either. Like, I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think like. Pretty much everything was the aftermath of violence, was it not? Yeah. 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 Exactly. What the hell? Yeah. That definitely qualifies as strange feedback. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. You're a sick man. All your, all your violence. All my gratuitous <laughs> violence and my misunderstanding about Southern folklore. Yes. You've got issues. You need to work those out. <laughs> Can't help it. <laughs> Well, what are you doing in the realm of marketing these days? Have you uh, latched on to anything different? We tried something new, actually. The cover of the book was actually designed by me. I had made a mock-up of what I thought might be a cool idea. Hmm. And when we sat down to meet with the cover designer, who was amazing, I put the thing up and the publisher loved it. And he was like, well, maybe you can do this. Play around with it a little bit. So I played around with it a little bit and eventually, you know, created the cover that is available. But whenever I was trying to drag the images into the ebook form from the mm -hmm. paperback form, the color gradient on the background got completely wiped out and it turned into a black and white cover. Mm -hmm. But it looked kind of cool. And my publisher actually wanted to go with that one. We ended up having a poll among all the authors in the Wicked House family and the dirty version, as we call it, was accepted. But, you know, as paperback, as the release kind of came forward, I messaged Patrick. I said, are you still like really in love with that black and white cover? And he said, yeah. I said, well, here's the deal. You know, I rewrote this story so many freaking times that I have so many deleted scenes. And a lot of them are involving a character, the sheriff, who was only in one scene of the book. Mm. He was originally a much bigger character. You're talking about the guy with the messed up nose? No, but he's involved in it. The man that comes and tells Miranda that she's a suspect. In oh, oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I have like 7,000 words of deleted scenes of this guy that when you put them together, almost makes a little bit of a coherent short story. Mm. You know, I also draw my characters. I have character sketches. So what we did was we said, all right, for the first week of release, anyone who orders the paperback, you will get a special edition with the black and white cover, as well as all of this extra material thrown in at the very, very end. Oh. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I yeah. we did that as like a shout out 
to like I know a lot of people like on like books of horror and the groups like that they love collecting like signed limited copies and that was kind of like a hey like thank you guys for supporting me this is a love letter to you guys all y'all that are going to buy this book opening week so that was something we tried and worked pretty well I think yeah I'm starting to learn how to use ads a little bit more cuz I'm wondering if I haven't tapped out social media at this point Talking about like Google ads or social media ads? Well, so Facebook ads, Google ads, however, I can get ads out, honestly. Because at this point, you know, it's like I'm just screaming into the void, especially now that Facebook pretty much makes it impossible to do anything without having to boost your post. Mm. But nothing concrete yet. I'm waiting for this crazy semester to kind of die down first. And then once I have some time, I'm actually going to sit down and really delve into it and try to figure out maybe some new and interesting ideas on things that I can do to help promote the book to a wider audience. Mm. Well, when I last spoke with you, it seemed like you had a lot of irons in the fire. Are you still feeling the frenzied manic rush to create? Oh yeah. 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 My third book got picked up. Mm -hmm. It'll be coming out in 2024. I'm working on final revisions before submission for the fourth book. And I actually went and made like an actual plan because, you know, I thought a lot. I was like, well, I wrote two books this year and I was able to do that. Not easily, but, you know, I was able to accomplish that. And I was like, I'm going to aim for writing essentially two books a year. And I've got eight full novels that I have like the stories planned out. So I kind of like set them up in terms of like when I'm going to write them and I did that specifically because if I don't list these things out, then I'm never going to get started on the next one because I'm going to have like 8,000 ideas in my head, all of which seem more important than the other. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want is to, you know, get like 20,000 words into a story and be like, yeah, this other one's calling my name now. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm still, uh, still in the frenzy of it. Well, so if you continue writing fiction, how do you think your writing style will evolve in the next five years? Like, particularly in relation to your age? That's a really good question. It's hard to answer. Yeah. So I know one thing that I've talked about with some other people has been like, you know, I think every writer kind of has their line of where they're not going to go. And for me, a lot of this violence against kids, especially with the fact that I've got, you know, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and I'm to the point now where like, I can't even imagine, like, if I turn a movie on, it's like, oh, yeah, this kid died. I'm like, mm, we're going to go ahead and turn this off because <laughs> I'm going to be an emotional wreck. I know I am. Mm. As they grow, I don't know if I'll be more open to including more stories, not gratuitously doing it, obviously. Yeah, as a teacher, I have lots of ideas about the failure of a lot of parents and the failure of a lot of offices on kids and the effects that we see of children and mistreatment. And it's a topic that I would like to explore one day, but I don't know if I'm in the right mind space right now to do it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how my mind might change on certain things as the years go by. I don't know. I do know that one of the things that I kind of made a priority was, you know, when I first started writing, I know my wheelhouse is that folk kind of Gothic zone of, you know, combining or whatever. That's a horrible way to describe that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've wanted to branch out a little bit. I want to write in a lot of different genres. I want to write in a lot of different settings. You know, for instance, like I don't have another book planned in the South for a while because I don't want to end up just writing books set in the South. 
My third book takes place on a crab fishing ship out in the Bering Sea. My fourth one's going to take place in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon. And then I have one that I want to go into the mining country of West Virginia. And I want to tackle, I know a lot of writers say like they want to avoid tropes. I'm kind of the opposite. I want to tackle tropes. I want to try to put a new spin on certain things. You know, I've got a story that is probably going to be the next one that I start writing that deals with abandoned orphanages and dolls. And those are things that I, like. I want to try my hand at that and see if I can't put a unique spin on this particular topic, which I kind of tried it with a dark group. It was just kind of like a little spin on the Rougarou myth, a spin on the idea of the witch and just, you know, so I think that's where I really see myself going in five years is trying to branch out into the tropes and genres that I do cover. Well, because you're a family man, I know finding ample writing time can be challenging. Have you discovered any life hacks to increase your writing time? No, no, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had an answer for you, but uh, I know how you could get an additional eight hours of writing time. (laughs) Yeah. Don't sleep. (laughs) Which I'm barely doing now as it is. Yeah, I've heard people say, like, well, wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and get, like, an hour of writing time in before you go to work. And I'm like, I am a teacher. Mm. Like, do you actually think I'm rolling out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning? Like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> now, I'll say that probably, like, like five years, I might be that guy who's, like, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, now I'm writing a story. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. Whatever I can mm. is the best answer I can give. Yeah. Well, I've never noticed it before, but I was looking on your website and saw that you actually have a blog you refer to as your journal. And I was wondering if you had any plans of starting a Substack. I do. It's one of the things that I need to hurry up and get off my ass and create. Andrew and I have joked about it quite a bit because he's in the same boat that I am. Oh, does he have one? And he doesn't yet, but he knows he needs to start one. So we're just... <laughs> procrastinating buddies at this point, but you know, it's something that I do want to do. I do have emails from giveaways, you know, as part of the giveaways, like you have to openly give your email with the understanding that it could be added to a mailing list, but I don't have one yet. I do plan on talking to Will Gray because he has a sub stack. He does very well with it to try to figure out kind of how that really works. But right now it's just on my website. I usually post the journal entries on Facebook. But I would much rather just have an email that at the very least, because like I hate the fact that Facebook, I can post the link to the journal and I've got 500 followers and like 20 of them might actually see the post like that. I hate that. So I feel like at least doing a Substack or something through email will at least ensure that I can safely say that they have the opportunity to see it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The thing I like about Substack is, you know, with any social media, you're going to have to have an account. And with Substack, it'll ask you for your email, but you have the option to decline and still view the author's material. So I would say anybody checking out, you know, oh, well, let me check out this author's Substack sees that they have to put their, oh, no, I'm not doing that to hell with that and go do something else. I think that gives you the ability to get a lot more people to view your content and be like, yeah, yeah, I'll give them my email address. I'd like to see this stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. So, well, a lot of people are starting to write novellas. Have you thought about doing that at all? 
I have actually. One of the books that I have on my long planner of things to do <laughs> is I want to write a novella collection. I have some ideas for some stories that I don't think are quite long enough to make into a novel, but I think they could work as novellas. And then another part of me was like, well, like I said before, I don't want to be that person that gets stuck in a location as a writer where I'm like, I'm only writing about the deep South, but I do love a lot of my settings. And I thought it'd be kind of cool. I could write novellas that take place in the same areas, mm-hmm. which essentially they could work as companion pieces to kind of fill out the stories around the area. But uh yeah, I'm open to the idea just right now. The novel ideas are coming quick, fast in a hurry. Mm-hmm. But we'll see because there's a very real chance that some like my novels are not particularly long as it is. All four of my books have landed within 70 to 80,000 words. Mm. And there's a very good chance that I might write a story in the very near future where it's like I'm done with it and I'll do the editing. And when I take stuff out, it's like, oh, this is a 50,000 word novella. Mm. And if that's the case, then so be it. You know, I'm not opposed to it at all. I need to read more novellas. I've obviously read some of them. Like I read like Four Past Midnight with Stephen King. And I have a desire in the near future to read Ronald Malfi's They Lurk that just got released. So I want to read some more novellas because I've heard some people say that it's not what you think it is. Like there's a very real structural process that needs to be followed, Hmm. which is similar to short stories. Like that's why I do not like writing short stories. I feel like I haven't quite mastered that structure yet. Hmm. You mentioned novella collection. How many novellas would be in a collection for you? For me, it'd be four. Okay. Yeah. Is that standard? I guess. I guess kind of. It seems like most of them that I read. You mentioned Malfi. I feel like that's the last thing I read from him was four novellas. Yeah. A collection of four novellas. Yeah. I know Anya Alburn did a novella collection where she did two, but they were a little bit on the longer side. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. I guess it really depends on how long the actual novellas are. I guess if you have a couple of novellas that push the 200 page part, you don't want to have four because then you have an 800 page book. Yeah. Might turn some people off. Not me, but you know. <laughs> some people like doorstops, but uh, right. I think the attention span is narrowing a bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Well, has anything significant in your personal life recently influenced your writing? And if so, can you share some examples? Nothing huge, I guess. Growing older is just a big part of it. I'm 31, so I'm obviously still on the younger side of it. But mm-hmm. as I continue to grow older, I see the world changing around me, just kind of witnessing certain things happening and you know, seeing things that I've always been familiar with, seeing them change. Mm-hmm. Now, being able to kind of call myself a writer, like talking with writers that I used to fawn over their new releases, now I'm actually talking to them mm-hmm. and things like that. That's been a big part of it. I think it's helped my confidence a lot mm-hmm. to the point where it's like when I write now, the imposter syndrome It's still there, but it's not as insidious as it was before. Mm. You know, a big part for me was Lee Mountford blurbed my first book. And when his blurb came out, you know, Lee is a very prolific writer over in the UK. It kind of just hit me. I was like, oh, snap, like someone in the field read it and enjoyed this. I've had a few authors reach out and express that they enjoyed both the books And that has been, it's like that moment where it's like, okay, well, this might actually be real. Like, this is something that is actually happening. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've started getting like invitations to go to conventions and things like that, where it's like, okay, like maybe this isn't just some one-off hobby that is going to flame out in a year. Like maybe I can actually make something of this. And that's been a huge part, just kind of trying to quell the dark voices of imposter syndrome as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in our previous interview that some of your students had read The Broken Places. Mm-hmm. Have any read A Dark Rue? And if so, what did they think? A couple of them have. They enjoyed it. I actually had two that brought the books to me on Thursday to sign. I've had a couple of students. Apparently, it was in another class where some kids said, I want to read his book, but I'm scared. It's like a doorway into his mind. Mm. <laughs> so, you know <laughs> I mean? <laughs> So, uh, well, you keep them in line, you know, <laughs> just uh, yeah. remember, Hey, like, quit talking in class. Yeah. Next time I'm <laughs> yelling at you, understand this is what's going through my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess kind of piggybacking off of that. And I feel like this question would lead a lot of people to try and take the humble route, but I mean, objectively answer it objectively. How do your students react to having an author as their teacher? Does this impact their engagement or interest in your classes? No. No? You're not like a rock star at all? <laughs> no, not at God all. God damn uh, it. Yeah, many of them could not possibly care less. <laughs> Some of them do, especially a lot of my students that do intend on going and pursuing like the four-year college route. Mm-hmm. They take what I say, like when I'm giving them feedback on Ryan, they take it very, very seriously. But a collective whole of this generation doesn't really read. So yeah, yeah, they could care less. Now, if you were reading excerpts from your books on TikTok, I am um, you, <laughs> I cannot do TikTok. I just can't. I keep toying with the notion, but I don't think I tried. I tried for like two and a half weeks earlier this year. And the whole time I'm just thinking like, this is the most obnoxious thing I've ever held in my hand. Like, I, <laughs> I cannot do this. I'm fairly introverted as it is. Yeah. Like, I cannot imagine doing this. And I'm sitting there and I'm just watching it. I'm like, I don't even find this stuff funny. Like, but you know, something else that I thought about too was like, you know, I know the algorithm for TikTok is very good for getting things into like-minded people's heads. That's what I've heard. It's not pay to play yet. Right. Well, do you ever use your own writing as teaching material? I think I may have asked you this in the last episode. I don't know. God, no. God, no. Uh, okay. No. Uh, don't want those parent-teacher conferences? <laughs> no, I really don't. I really don't. I, yeah. I had a student ask me this week, actually. They're like, do you cuss in your book? And I'm like, do people curse in real life? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. I said, then yeah. You know, it's hard to really, I guess, contextualize it because, like, you got these kids. Like, you're in a public school. I know dang well you were hearing significantly worse stuff Oh yeah. in the hallways walking into my class than you are reading the book but at the same time touchy subject especially down here and i have to mention i had a professor in college one time that like assigned their own textbook Mm -hmm. and that just pissed me off for some reason (laughs) i don't know i hated it so i'm like i'm not gonna do that and then plus obviously with teaching now a lot of what we do unfortunately is we're given curriculums that are specified in terms of very rigid guidelines of what we're supposed to teach uh-huh. And so much of that is to honestly avoid lawsuits. So unfortunately, no, I do not use it. I do on Halloween like to ask my kids to like write a scary story. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's probably about the closest that uh, I come to it. 
Well, speaking of specialized content, in your opinion, what elements of Southern Gothic horror are increasingly influencing the broader horror genre? You see anything slipping in that's kind of changing the horror landscape? Yeah, I see a lot of the mysticism mm. that is kind of present in a lot of Southern Gothic stuff. And I think a big part of that was, you mentioned it earlier, was season one of True Detective. Yeah. I think that becoming part of the cultural landscape was big in terms of, especially now when we have like true crime has a, such a huge oh, uh, <laughs> genre. And I think that if you can add that little bit of mysticism to it, I think that really resonates with a lot of people and it kind of bridges that gap between like a true crime consumer and a horror consumer hmm. and creates this really cool little highway. And I think you're starting to see that quite a lot. I've noticed an uptick in cosmic too. Cosmic. Yeah. Like specifically in indie horror, I've noticed a lot of people are starting to write more stories kind of in that cosmic kind of scale, like Lovecraftian style stuff. Oh, okay. Andrew Van Way has been a huge one. And then let's see, but that's not Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is mainly the mysticism. And I do think that right now we're kind of in this cool little spot where you're really starting to see the struggle between past and present. And the struggle about what we should keep from our past and what we should get rid of, which obviously can be magnified into a much bigger situation, like on the global scale. Mm -hmm. But Southern Gothic plays a lot with that because in so much of Southern Gothic, there's that conflict between the Old South and the New South. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, that idea, that dichotomy of those two things, I'm starting to see a lot of that in a lot of you know up new literature now as well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Blaine, it has been a pleasure talking with you. It's been a pleasure myself. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um, yes. So my third novel, A Dark and Endless Sea, is set for publication in 2024. We're still kind of figuring out the month, but look for late summer. That's kind of where it is. And that's pretty much it. If you want to follow me, go on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter on Blaine Daigle Author. And that's pretty much it. Awesome. All right. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Blaine, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much, Vince. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer who has captured the childhood imagination in its darkest form. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Can't you see that? Every time we give in, we're headed for a dead end. I've got to say it. Don't make me make you cry. Won't make me change my mind. It's obvious that it isn't gonna work. Better stop running or we'll walk away home. I'm trying to say goodbye. Been here a thousand times. We say yes, but we should.